Hello and welcome to another episode of Bandofla. I'm your host, Febzi Hussein. We are in Islamophobia Awareness Month and in this episode we will be discussing this important initiative with none other than the Outreach Director for CAGE, Mozam Beg. Uh, Mozam actually is... Um, for, for those of you who follow uh, international affairs will be aware that he's a former Guantanamo Bay detainee uh, and he, he was released um, back in 2005, I, I think, after spending three years in that hellhole uh, without any charge uh, or trial. Um, so the chat is going to be about Islamophobia uh, awareness month and we cover quite a few subjects linked to that so enjoy the interview um, and we'll go there now we're in Islamophobia awareness month and I'm delighted to welcome uh, to guests a, a, a very well-known activist, um, a brother from KGUK, Moazem Beg. Uh, Moazem, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome and thank you for having me uh, and uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I hope we'll have a great conversation. Yeah, of course. Okay, listen, like I said, it's, it's Islamophobia Awareness Month and there's lots of different activities um, around the UK. Um, we wanted to kind of develop the conversation, push the awareness higher. Um, in your own words, Mazam, why is it important for us to highlight this initiative, this, this, this important initiative? Um, well, first of all, assalamu alaikum to everyone. Uh, secondly, Islamophobia Awareness, awareness Month is, is really important because we are a, a people, a nation here who have dealt with and seen over the past decades the effects of racism, the targeting of communities based upon uh, a perception of the ethnicity stroke religion. There are some people who say, and this is particularly now the far right, but also people on different uh, spect- uh, parts of the spectrum, who say it's okay to target Muslims because Islam is a belief system, it's not a race. And therefore, we are free to, uh, under the expression of uh, freedom, to, uh, to condemn or to attack race, uh, a religion in, in the way that we could any other ideology but there is a racialization of Islam and it's really important that we understand this. This is something that happened in Bosnia where people were blonde haired, blue eyed, white Slavic Muslims who were butchered and the biggest massacre after World War II uh, was carried out against the indigenous Muslims of Europe. And in the same way, when we've seen the rise of Islamophobia, this is precisely the language that the far right uses. The far right doesn't already, doesn't say anymore that we are openly racist in the way that they do used to before. They actually hone in right across Europe and America on saying, we've got no problem with other races, we just don't like Muslims. Well, if you scratch the surface, you'll find also that they're deeply racist. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you make that point. I think you're spot on. Um, That that kind of conveniently takes me on to the point around where we are here in the UK um, and the really the, the, the actions of our government, which doesn't do much to really help um, Muslims who live here in the UK in terms of Islamophobia. 
Um, what's your what's your reaction to some of the if you look at the comments that are associated with with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, and just just generally the the positioning of the government and how they kind of unfortunately perpetuate the racist narrative. Well, of course, you'll know with Boris Johnson, anybody who's read his writings before, if you if you could bring yourself to do that. He, he's written in the past and has very clearly said in his writings for the Times and other um, newspapers that Islam is the problem. The problem is Muslims and Islam, and we need to actually get medieval on them. That's the terminology he, he's recorded and having, having said that. And even as prime minister or close to becoming prime minister, um, you know, he described Muslim women as uh, um, who were the naqab as looking like bank robbers and letterboxes. And of course, you saw with statements like this, which are deeply irresponsible, attacks uh, on Muslims uh, increased. Now, it wasn't, it's not as if Islamophobia wasn't ripe already. In 2013, before the rise of ISIS, before the, the you know, Britain's role in, in Syria and, and so forth in Iraq, in the second phase, um, Islamophobia was so rife that Baroness Warsi, who was the co-chair of the Conservative Party that was in power, actually said that the Islamophobia has passed the dinner table test. That means you can sit around dinner, talk about football, EastEnders, Coronation Street, and how bad Muslims are, and nobody will bat an eyelid. So Islamophobia is so widely spread, in fact, you can see that it, it's actually not just in the Conservative Party who refuse to uh, repeatedly uh, uh, have the inquiries that have been asked by people like Sajid Javed, who himself was uh, um, talking about Islamophobia for a short while, uh, but unfortunately, it's also within the Labour Party. It also exists. There are people like, you know, renowned figures like Trevor Phillips who've been thrown out of the Labour Party or suspended because of his rampant Islamophobia. So Islamophobia uh, goes across the board, unfortunately, and has been picked up by all sorts of anti-Muslim uh, um, uh, people who, who, who espouse anti-Muslim hatred and so forth. And uh, unfortunately, as I said, it's across the political divide and we need to challenge that uh, because as we'll talk about perhaps later, uh, it manifests itself not just in the workplace or in uh, the media, but also on the streets. And, and also I will talk to you about later how Islamophobia manifests itself very clearly based on evidence and statistics in legislation. Okay, I mean, in, you, you mentioned Baroness uh, Wazi. Um, I, I think she was, was she one of the uh, people in the Conservatives part, Party calling for an investigation into Islamophobia in the Conservative yeah. Party? And we're we're yeah. still waiting for that. That hasn't happened, has it? Exactly. So the Tories had said, I think the last beginning of the last election, when Baroness, Baroness Wazi, of course, had left um, uh, uh, government at, by that point, but uh, when Sajid Javid at the time was the Home Secretary, who himself was actually accused of uh, taking, playing a role in Islamophobia, um, he had asked in, during the Conservative uh, election, electioneering uh, for there to be a, an inquiry into Islamophobia. And, of course, the Tories had said, Boris Johnson and his leadership had said, yeah, we will, we will, we will. And in the end, when it came down to it, they said, no, we'll have an inquiry on all sorts of hatred. Uh, basically a su a suggestion suggesting that um, Islamophobia is like everything else and we've got it covered and we'll look at everything else across the board, uh, but we won't look at it specifically. 
And of course, we've seen Islamophobia attacks go up uh, hundreds of percent in London and elsewhere. Uh, mosques bombed, people killed, uh, and um, the targeting of Muslims physically, Muslim women uh, having the hijabs and the carbs pulled off, beaten up, uh, and so forth. In my own city of Birmingham, of course, we know that the tragic, tragic case of Mohammed Salim, who was on his way back home from the mosque, who was killed by somebody from the far right, Pablo Lapshin. Um, and we see his amazing daughter campaigning up and down the country, talking about Islamophobia. And this Pablo Pab uh, Lapshin himself had tried to bomb several mosques, bomb them in, uh, uh, in the West Midlands. So we know that Islamophobia is on the rise because we've seen numerous cases of individuals from the far right, some of whom are serving police officers or serving of, uh, uh, soldiers in the military who had planned race wars directed towards Muslims. So we know that it exists and it exists at a level that is shocking and I would say relatively unprecedented because again, their targets are not just different races. Their targets of are Muslims who constitute many races. Yeah, I'm glad you, you touched on um, Mr. Salim's case because that was, as you say, incredibly disturbing that uh, a man returning back from Juma uh, prayers was, was brutally murdered, literally yards away from his home. Um, and I know Maz uh, watches and listens to, to this podcast and, and it, would, it would be, your words will offer a degree of comfort uh, that you've, you've acknowledged um, her father in that way. So thank you, Maz. I think if we're talking about the government, it's, it would be appropriate for us to touch on prevent, the, the prevent uh, scheme, you know, how in, in education, there's been so many people calling for prevent to be abolished, to be disbanded because of basically the, you know, it's, it isn't really doing anything apart from perpetuating a problem in, in, in many people's eyes. Um, what's What's your view on, on prevent and, and where should the government go on that? So when we were, I was saying to you that we're going to address a little bit about um, state policy and how Islamophobia manifests itself in that way from, through legislation. So in 2015, prevent became part of uh, the Counterterrorism and Security Act, Act, which made it a legal duty upon our uh, uh, hospitals, schools, universities, and even nurseries to report people that may be susceptible to becoming extremists. And this includes nursery children. Nursery children who know we know in the case of documented cases, for example, in one where a child mispronounces the word cucumber. You know, what, what were you doing at home? Oh, my mom was cutting cucumber, making cucumber. And the, 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 the teacher hears, because the child mispronounces the word, the child says cucumbum. Oh, did you just say cucumbum? Your, your, your mother was helping to make a cucumbum. And that child is referred to, uh, to counterterrorism officers. And we've got tons of cases. We've got another case of a, of a young child who wears a, a T-shirt to school saying, when I grow up, I want to be like Abu Bakr. Now, most Muslims know that Abu Bakr was the closest companion of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Muhammad, and is a great, uh, revered character in Islam. But a, a nursery teacher who's not a Muslim perhaps doesn't know. And so the only Abu Bakr they've heard of is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, 
the head of the bogus caliphate in 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 uh, uh, Iraq and the head of ISIS, and so that child yeah. is reported to prevent. So there's tons of cases that we've that we've looked at, and the overwhelming majority are children uh, children who've been referred to prevent. Now anybody would understand that. Yeah, we want to stop violence on our streets. We don't want any terrorist attacks taking place. But this is not about that. This is about policing thought, policing a practice of a faith, uh, honing in on how people are. One of the risk guidances that have been presented to those who are given training is that if a person's confused about their identity, if a person uh, is campaigning for Palestine, if a person feels alienated, these are all signs of them becoming an extremist. And you know, here, the, the facts speak for themselves. Who's spoken out against Prevent? The former director of public prosecutions said, and I quote, that Prevent is causing, creating a chilling effect on debate in university and a deadening effect on uh, research. It means it's frightening people. No, I don't want to do anything about Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan in my, in my um, research because somebody might just say I'm a terrorist. Uh, and in other cases, you've got a report by the United Nations in 2017 that said, and I quote, that prevent isn't stopping extremism, prevent could be causing extremism because what it's doing is pushing people into a corner and saying, you know what, we're not looking at the rest of the country, we're just looking at you guys because Muslims have been and are susceptible to become terrorists because of their faith. And that hasn't, you know, it doesn't even look at that in terms of um, context. Just in 2015, I believe, Europol did a study in which they, that they, concluded that 99.7% of terrorist attacks that took place in Europe were carried out by people who were not Muslim, meaning Muslims did 0.3%. So what does that tell you? We're focusing on this massive number, or, or sorry, this tiny number and leaving, a, 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 leaving this massive number. And that's because the majority of people who live in Europe are white, uh, 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 Caucasian, and we don't want to actually say that the majority of crimes committed in Europe are committed by white Europeans because they're the majority. It's obvious that that will be the case, but we want to skew it and present the minority as the biggest perpetrators. Yeah, some, some great observations there. I, I guess that in terms of the perception of the public and the way that Muslims and Islam is constantly demonized, it leads us very nicely onto the next area, which is the media. Now there's some groups, some media bodies are very responsible how they report uh, news, um, but there are some groups out there, I won't name them, I won't give them the kudos of any kind of publicity on this podcast, um, but we know there are some media groups who run almost daily headlines. If it isn't anti-refugee headlines, it's anti-Muslim headlines. Um, Again, we, we touched on the government's role in all this, but I personally think, Moazan, that a big part of the problem is down to the media because they feed the rhetoric. I mean, what, what can we do to begin, to begin to challenge that? Well, yes, you're right. First of all, I mean, you, you know, you gave half the answer, right, because you said they, you know, there's a daily... Uh, um, you know, feed of this. We won't say the other part, but we know exactly who we mean because some of these guys have form. I mean, honestly, if you read some of their history in the back, in the in the past, these very papers were supporting and supporting of the Nazis during the height of when they were in power before before the World War 
two started. They would describe uh, uh, as cockroaches, people from the Jewish community at that time who were fleeing persecution. They, in, in modern times, they describe refugees as cockroaches and rats are depicted as rats running amongst uh, refugees coming over in, into our borders. The similar language, I mean, they have authors and columnists who are renowned or have been renowned for stoking uh, anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant hatred because they connect the two. They say the majority of immigrants kind of come from Africa or Asia. And, you know, the majority of people from those regions, you know, a lot of them are Muslim. So therefore we can bung them all in together and say they're all a curse upon our societies. And so they create this. And, and, and I think part of the whole story of even Brexit is, is connected to that. There's, there's no getting away from it. You, you know, the drip free, the, the fear of the Turks coming over, millions of them coming over and taking our jobs and so forth. That was all banded about by people like Nigel Farage and others, which was com a completely concocted lie. But yeah. what happens is with the normal person, it remains because once it's been said, as in the words of Goebbels, you repeat a lie uh, enough times, it becomes the truth in the eyes of many. And uh, so this, the, the, the fifth estate, the media, it plays a massive role, as you have said. And unfortunately, again, I say, yes, it is most often right-wing tabloid and so forth, but sometimes you get people from the other side of the spectrum who are trying to play to that um, different audience who also say, yeah, you know what, you kind of got a point. And you've got these, uh, you've got amongst those, you've got people who kind of, I would say, they stoked the fuel and the fire, not just of Islamophobia, but even of the wars and the invasions that created the Islamophobia, because Islamophobia it becomes exacerbated when British troops are fighting, dying, and I would say more than anything else, killing uh, darker skinned people in the Arab and Muslim world. And in, in order to show our support, as it were, for the boys who are, who are doing this, uh, we have to say, yeah, you know what, those Muslims, there is something wrong with them, otherwise we wouldn't have to go there to to kind of fix them. Uh, and the media has played a massive role in that. In fact, I would say the media has blood on their hands, some of the media, especially those who stoked the fuel for the fire that burned in Iraq and killed, uh, you know, at the, at the smallest of estimates, over a million people. Um, and there's simply been no accountability process. And we've seen, uh, again, tabloids, they just love to do it. They know it sells paper, hatred sells. Um, understanding, uh, thinking, analysis doesn't sell. That that actually takes more brain cells and people don't want to look at that. People just want to say, yeah, black and white. White is good, black is bad. You are black, we are white, and neither the twain shall meet. It's as simple as that. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, it is frightening how, how easily people are manipulated and how easily the landscape can change in a very short period of time. Um, I mean, I went to, um, there was, uh, there's been quite a few far right groups. I was in Birmingham a couple, before the pandemic um, when the Football Lads Alliance marched through the, the ball ring. Um, and it was very frightening, Mozam. There was uh, members of that group who were uh, Sikh Hailin doing Nazi salutes. Um, they were blatantly targeting individuals in Muslim dress by throwing beer uh, over them. Uh, and the police weren't reacting at all. Um, you know, they obviously were more worried about the reaction from, from the far right. And it was, it was very, very 
distressing to see. Um, but listen, what sort of campaigns has uh, Cage got at the moment? And is there anything that you want to highlight with our listeners? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, what you, of course, what you've been talking about is shocking because I'm from the city of Birmingham and I have mm. seen, I grew up um, fighting neo-Nazis, fighting skinheads, getting beaten up by them and fighting them back and seeing them march up and down the streets back in the 70s, back in the 80s, seek hiling. And to imagine that that's happening, you know, in the 21st century, you know, at this point of time, it, you can see we've regressed. So I'm, it's, it, that is shocking. Uh, mm -hmm. But our campaign at the moment, we have Cage has a campaign called the International Witness Campaign uh, that that run that was running from September the 11th, 20th anniversary of that terrible attack, until the 11th of January, which is the first uh, the first load of prisoners were taken to Guantanamo in January uh, 2002. So that's like this uh, period of time in which we are doing multi a multitude of events, mm -hmm. uh, lectures, talks. Uh, debates, discussions, podcasts, uh, with over 45 different organizations from across America, Britain, Asia, and Africa, where people, former soldiers, former guards, uh, analysts, um, lawyers, and activists, are talking about what this entire period has been, recording it, analyzing it, and looking forward, offering ways for the future so that we uh, we can avoid or at least, at least be able to fight some of this aspect. And of course, Islamophobia is a very big part of that. Uh, but as I said, we, we focus on state-level Islamophobia, state-level um, anti-Muslim laws uh, that we've seen both in the United States of America, we've seen it in, uh, in Britain, we've seen it in places like China with how uh, the Uyghurs have been treated. So mm. Islamophobia really has come full circle and uh, we are in the process of trying to educate population around the world that really just as, um, you know, Islam is not bound by race, the hatred against Islam is also not bound by race. And, and uh, as I said, this anti-Muslim feeling that exists, whether it's in India, whether it's in China, whether it's in Britain, or whether it's even in some of the Muslim countries, mm -hmm. um, it is rife and, and we want people to be able to to recognize it okay before we touch on well because i want to try and touch on something positive in terms of what we could possibly encourage to um you know get some better behaviors a bit more tolerance in society but you touched on guantanamo uh, brother and for for our listeners all over the world we've actually got quite a large uh, listening um base in america um, and you were a Guantanamo detainee, um, and your story is very well documented. So I would, I'd, I'd like us to just briefly touch on this. And I know we could never do the, um, you know, the subject justice for for what you went through. Um, but you, I heard you speak before, Mozam, and you shared a, a really interesting story about one of the US soldiers in Guantanamo Bay uh, and I think it's again it's lead nicely on to the next point because I think it's a really nice story and it shows at the end of the day you're a human, human being and you know after everything you went through um, so I'm going to stop there because I don't want to say anything more but if you explain to listeners that story please. Well, I, I'm going to try because um, 
there are several American soldiers uh, who I know and, have, and became my friends in Guantanamo and have subsequently visited me. They've, they've come and visited my home and I would call them not just friends, but actual, you know, they're like brothers. They are brothers, in fact. Um, I'll take the example of, of, of one of them. You know, you, you, you could never imagine this, right? But I'm here, I, I'm there rather than Guantanamo in a solitary confinement cell being where I've been held for two years already by this time. And, and there's no window, there's no communication, no phone calls, no newspapers, no radio, no TV, nothing. It's just the walls and this caged wire around me. And, and a guy comes in you know, and speaks with this kind of, you know, New York accent. And, you know, to me, it sounds like something out of Bugsy Malone or something. And uh, you know, I've never been to him. I've never been to America, but, you know, this is the way he speaks to me. Hey, Mose, how you doing, man? And, uh, you know, I thought, wow, this guy's calling me by my name because my, everybody else called me by my number, 558. That was my number. And uh, he said, you know what? I bought you something that I think you're going to like. And what did he bring? He bought um, a DVD player. Now, this was against the rules. If he got caught, he'd get, he'd get in trouble. But this is and why he was in Guantanamo. He, so he was serving. He was a soldier. He was guarding, right? Yeah. This was while I was in Guantanamo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he brings this over, this, this DVD player. And in the DVD player, he said, you ever seen the film Snatch? And uh, I, I said, no, but I would love to watch it. And Snatch is just like brilliant film with Brad Pitt and, and you know, Jason Statham and all these other people, which is based mm. in London. Which yeah. is, you know, it's a, you know, and he puts it on and he says, I want you to watch this because he'd never been to England either. And he, his perceptions of England are all about like, like this. So I'm sitting there watching this and I'm just smiling and laughing all the way through the film. And this soldier did this for me at great uh, um, risk to himself. If he'd got yeah. caught, he yeah. would have got thrown out of the army for a, a, a crime called fraternization with the enemy. And from that time, when I got released, eventually he got in contact with me from Facebook and so forth. And uh, he came down to Birmingham. We met together. We toured the city. I swear, wherever we'd go to have a meal, people would see us. And when we'd go to pay the bill, somebody's already paid the bill, saying, no way are we going to let you guys pay the bill. You're bringing so much positive energy to us. And he stayed at my house that night. And I said to him for a joke, I said, listen, Al, his name's Al. I said, you know, you are most welcome in my house. He met my wife, he met my kids, who I was, you know, torn away from while he was mm. responsible for me. I said, you are most welcome here, my friend. But tonight, let me tell you something. I've got the keys for the doors. And, you know, we just laughed about it. So, but it's that kind of thing that, and I can tell you many other stories with many other soldiers, with, which, which has different hues and tints on it. But... This is the part of the story sometimes people don't understand. Oh, you campaign against Islamophobia, you're an extremist, you're this and you're that. People say all that sort of stuff. I said, well, if that was the case, do you think, you know, I invited these guys to my house and I know they would if they could, but America's never going to be prepared in, in, in the foreseeable future to ever invite somebody like me to come yeah. over there to talk about this. And when they are, I think that time will be right for us to try and find a, a, a better world uh, from the one that we've been in so far. I have to say, you know, whenever you hear, uh, it's the second time I've heard that story and this is why it, it is so important to share those stories because it, it kind of, you know, it, it, shows, it shows the human side um, and in terms of what 
what you went through as an individual, what so many other people went through and what some people are still going through because that wretched place is, is still um, open um, despite the promises of um, President Obama to, to close it. I don't know what yeah. Biden's position is on, on Guantanamo, um, but I guess it's a democratic, it's a Democrat policy to, to try to close it. So uh, inshallah, one day that place will will close. Um, I hope so too. I mean, you know, one thing that I, I want people to understand is that Guantanamo has been open now for 20 years uh, and both Democrat and Republican presidents have kept it open. Um, you know, Bush is the one who opened it, but actually Bush released more prisoners than anybody else. Obama, who was a constitutional lawyer, could have and should have said one word to describe the prisoners. He could have said, these are innocent men we are holding. And if he, had he done so, it would have been easier to free them. But, uh, um, you know, he went, Trump came, he said, I'm going to keep it open. I'm going to load it up with more people. I believe in torture. And since Biden's come, he's been in power for one year almost. Mm. Um, one prisoner has been released, and there's still 38 prisoners there. 38. Well, I mean, our friends in, in America listening, um, if there's anything you can do to lobby, um, you know, the, the, the president's office, it's important that we keep pushing that, that message that there is no place you know Guantanamo should be closed there's no reason no justification to to keep that hell hellhole open um so if, uh, we, we'll, we'll pray that that place closes yeah and you know if we for the American viewers that if you are interested I myself and six other former Guantanamo prisoners who were all uh, published authors we wrote uh, an open letter to Joe Biden that was published in the New York Review of Books we offered him a, an eight-point plan in how Guantanamo can be closed and bring America back to what it used to be in terms of uh, um, having a position in the world and being respected. And we've presented that. And so if you want to just do a search, New York Review of Books, eight point plan, um, you know, you can lobby your, your representatives mm. and senators uh, with that. It's very tempting to really go into a, a different discussion subject completely now that we've touched on that but we'll be here for the next two or three hours if we if we did that so yeah we, we, we might have to call you back for for that one Mazen. but just on that i mean i read um morat kornaz's um book the turkish guy from germany um and i, I can't remember i can't remember how long morat was in um, guantanamo i think it's a similar time yeah, to so Yes, yeah, so Murat uh, is a Turkish uh, uh, citizen of German extract, or, or the other way around, rather. And uh, he was in Guantanamo for five years. His book is called Five Years of My Life. He actually has a very, very powerful film called Five Years of My Life. If you ever want to see it, it's, it's, it's really, really moving. It's in film as well? Yeah, it's, yeah it oh. is indeed. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. I'll definitely look that up. Okay, so that was a really positive story because I think everyone... You know that people fed by the media will immediately think someone who's in Guantanamo Bay. Oh, there must be a reason why he he's there, uh, and you completely kind of sweep away these um, you know stereotypical views. So I, I think this discussion is so so vital for that. So thank you, Moza. Um, so following on from that kind of positiveness, what do you think is the single biggest thing we can do to 
try to encourage some better behaviors in society, you know, just so that people understand and, and respect uh, Islam and, and, and Muslims and, and just to just to develop better friendship and love, I, I guess. Yes. You know, sometimes, you know, the most difficult thing to do is to challenge challenge somebody's uh, in a misunderstanding. You know, one, one of the things that we can do is that, you see, ignorance, if people are being Islamophobic based upon actual ignorance, it's okay, because you can fix that with a bit of knowledge. But if they're doing it based upon you no know, a belief system uh, that they think, yes, no, I know all about this, um, then, you know, as it were, true believers are harder to, to deal with. But, but the majority of people are ignorant and, and we can easily deal with that. So I'll give you just some examples. I mean, I have relatives in my family, some of them who wear uh, the full niqab and so forth. And one of them told me that she was in a shop and a woman, an elderly lady started to attack her, scream at her and, and make noises and uh, speak to her as if she wasn't there. So she turned around and spoke in the absolute, because she's a perfect English speaker, uh, and she's a uh, she's a medic. She, she's actually a, a, um, a, um, you know a, a scientist. Uh, so she spoke to her from behind the veil and uh, said, in, in as I said, perfect English. Do you have a problem with me that I that I can help you with to to remove that ignorance from you? And she was shocked because she expected to hear somebody who couldn't speak English or couldn't speak English very well. And she went on to describe her role, her job. She's a mother. She drives a car. She has she has fears, hopes, loves, uh, and they started to get into a conversation. And the woman, in the end, started to cry. She broke right. down into tears. She said, "You're just a human being like me, and I'm ashamed of myself for having spoken to you in this way. You didn't harm me in any way." So she was a decent person. So, really, every every human being, even evil human beings, have some decency in them somewhere. We just have to try to, to, to extricate it from themselves. And you'll find that people, the hatred that they have, uh, um, sometimes, and this is based on a verse in the Quran, it says, respond with that which is best. This is an actual verse in the Quran. Asan. And then you will see that he who has in his heart a great hatred for you will become like a close friend. There's another beautiful verse in the Quran, which I want to mention, and it's to do with you know, the soldiers I mentioned, because that's important because they saw us as evil mm. in the beginning and were told by their generals that we are intrinsically evil. Yeah. So this verse says, oh, you who believe, stand up as just witnesses for God and do not allow your animosity and hatred of a people to cause you to do them an injustice. Be just, that's closer to God consciousness. So when I speak about the American soldiers and others and any, even those who harm me, I try to talk about their good qualities. And this was, historically speaking, always the Islamic way. If you're going to criticize somebody, I went to a talk once about, you know, one, one, uh, one man, he's criticizing another scholar. He spends the first 20 minutes of his 40-minute talk praising him, explaining how good he, this person is and so forth. And I think that we need to do that. I mean, I, I hold myself first accountable for that. I attack lots of Islamophobes all the time. Um, but we sometimes do need to speak with that which is best and wise and not seek confrontation in every uh, um, every interaction. Sometimes go to a person and say, listen, I can see where you're coming from. I understand where you're coming from. I can I've, uh, um, relate to them. And perhaps we may get a different response. I remember just one, one little story I wanted to tell you. There was a mosque in, in, in York 
and I, I, I remember the EDL that turned up back in those days to, to protest against the mosque and how terrible it is to have these Muslims there. The Muslims responded by putting out tables with samosas, pakoras, tea, biscuits, and so forth. And, you know, the EDL guys came along and uh, instead of shouting and screaming, they ended up eating this stuff and uh, having a little bit of a banter with these people. So it did change a bit of perspective. I'm not saying that's always the response. Sometimes you have to fight skinheads. Sometimes you have to fight the Nazis. Sometimes you have to, you know, go blow fist to fist with them, but not all the time. Yeah, that's a great, great story, Mozam. Listen, Mozam, we're, we're coming towards the end of this uh, interview. And I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm blown away by, um, you know, a lot of what you've shared with, with us. Um, it's so inspiring and so important to begin to build you know the, those bridges which have been damaged by those media groups that we talk about and and the politicians as well um apologies for the the banging noise in the background it's obviously neighbors blowing up fireworks um <laughs> it's that time of year um i mean what what i wanted to do whether it's, it's something you could help us with we it, as it's islamophobia awareness month you you touched on um, Mohammed Salim in Birmingham, um, and there's also the the brother in uh, Finsbury Park Mosque who was killed as as well, Akram Ali. Um, and for all the victims of uh, Islamophobia, I I wondered if you would be kind enough to um, mm -hmm. to say a, a dua for for our brothers and sisters um, before we close. Well, you know, thank you, Fozi. That that's a really a beautiful thing to say, and and uh, you know, that's I really love being in this because of the way in, in which you want to finish this and, and the direction it's going in. So uh, let me make a dua and, and in English, um, a, a prayer for those uh, great examples of faith and fortitude who were killed after all for nothing other than wanting to worship their Lord, Makram Ali, in um, Finsbury Park. Uh, and Mohammed Salim here in Birmingham. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, may God the mighty and sublime forgive their sins, enter them into the highest ranks of paradise as martyrs, open their graves and make them a wide expanse, make them a garden from the gardens of paradise. May he make it easy on those left behind from their family members and make them an example of standing up for justice while speaking the word of truth. And may those who were involved in their killings be guided away from the error of their ways and turned towards the light of that which is truth and seek forgiveness and finally earn a place where forgiveness uh, overshadows vengeance and retribution. Because after all, we know as Muslims, God is most forgiving, most merciful, and he's also the most just and the most wise and we seek his justice. That was beautiful. Thank you, brother. Um, I hope one day you can join us again for um, some wider political uh, discussion. These are very important subjects. Um, the more we discuss these important issues, the, the more awareness we create. I think people will understand our religion better uh, and there'll be mutual, mutual respect, um, which is, after all, all, all we want. So. Thank you, brother, for, for joining me on Bandofla. It's been absolutely my pleasure and God willing, um, I hope that we, inshallah, get to speak again soon.
Okay, listeners, we've reached the end of another episode. My sincere thanks to Moazam Beg uh, and KGK for coming on to Bandofla and discussing this very important subject. I can advise you that uh, Mozam will also be taking part in a special CWU uh, event on the 29th of uh, November, um, along with uh, representatives from MEND, um, and that promises to be a a great uh, awareness and education exercise as well. So uh, members and trade union representatives in the CWU will be in for a treat. So, um, I guess all that leaves me to say is to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter. <clears throat> Sorry, a bit of a frog in the throat there. Um, on Twitter, we are at underscore Bandofla, B-A-N-D-O-F-L-A. You can email, email us at podcastbandofla at gmail.com and we are now on uh, we have a a channel on YouTube so if you search Bandofla on YouTube we're building up our video content um, and the there is the the interview with Mozam is is also on on the YouTube channel so um, do keep safe um, and until next time take care